0: Welcome to the Saints and Sinner Podcast. We're a Reformed podcast to help God's often weary people find their rest in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. My name's Daniel, and I'm here again with my co-host, Brian. And today we're going to have a conversation about the kinds of people that Jesus has come to save. So this is part two. If you haven't listened to it, episode three, uh, we did part one where we looked at Abraham, Jacob, and Judah, and we saw really clearly there that, well... God doesn't choose these people because they're really good blokes, but because of his mercy. And we're going to look at a few figures, um, even the nation of Israel today. So it should be a really fun one. But we're going to kick it off with an opening gambit. And it's a post that that we've come across recently. And it would be good to chat about because it, it, it does connect with what we want to talk about. And that is the interpretation of the Old Testament in particular. So this is what this person said. They said, I'm very glad to see pastors wake up to the antinomian overcorrections of the gospel-centered movement. In other words, he's saying, I'm glad that we're no longer just gospel-centered people. Every sermon had to be in the past. The Bible says do X. You can't do X. Jesus did X for you. End sermon. And then he said, But you don't believe the gospel rightly until you obey Jesus. Now, um, just just quickly on that, I get what he's saying. So we we don't want to read the Bible in in that kind of a wooden way, where every single time it becomes predictable. So every sermon is the same. Where you're like, okay, here we go. He's just told us what we got to do. Looking at your watches, okay, in about five minutes' time, he's going to tell us we can't do it. Another ten minutes, he's going to say Jesus did it, and then that's going to be the end of the sermon. Yeah, that that is a pretty rubbish way to I preach.
1: I think his argument is that pastors aren't who, who kind of subscribe to a gospel centered preaching hermeneutic are not preaching the whole counsel of God. I think that's what he's trying to get at, that you're, you're missing the fullness of what scripture has to say. It's not just, hey, here's the law. You can't do it. Here's the gospel. And he's just saying, there's more. There's more to it. And that's what he says in the, in the wonderful last line that he <laughs> presents us with.
0: Yeah, yeah, which isn't great as in. You, you'll get onto that in a minute, Brian. But I remember at seminary, we were always taught three things when it comes to how to interpret passage, how to read it for yourself, and how to preach it. You have the original context. You have Christ and what he has done and how he is the, the telos, the end, the fulfillment of the passage. And then you have application. You might use another word like implication or whatever, or use if you're a Puritan. But the same thing, you have the original context, what Christ has done, and then the application. And, and you always go wrong if you miss one of those three steps. Right. I, I, don't, I don't care what it is you're preaching. If you don't do all three of them, you've gone wrong somewhere. And so, Ryan, what, what goes wrong if we miss the original context? well everything <laughs> yeah. Sure. yeah so so what goes wrong is if you rip a passage
1: out of the bible and read it in isolation from the rest of the scriptures it makes no sense well actually it'll make whatever sense you want it to make you can twist it and turn it to fit your own desires and needs and then it's not really the word of god you see the word of god is only the word provided it's read in its appropriate context the way it was meant to be given in the initial
0: place yeah yeah, that's good. What goes wrong if we go from original context and we get that right? We skip the cross and go straight to application. What's the problem with that? You're missing the context
1: of the entire Bible. So you might think and fool yourself into believing that I'm reading this or preaching it in the context of Exodus or, or Leviticus or whatever passage of the Bible you're looking at. But you're really not unless you're reading and teaching it through the lens of Jesus's own interpretation of the Bible. That's the context. Where he says in luke twenty four the entire Bible is about him and his work of salvation. And so if you read it in isolation from his interpretation, you're ripping it from the context of the entire Bible.
0: yeah, yeah, that's right. and and so if, if I preach a sermon, if I preach Psalm one in such a way where I could do it in a synagogue and a mosque and everyone would be happy with me, I've failed to preach. Mm. I've not preached um, as, as Brian rightly says. Luke 24, 44, Jesus says all of the scripture is ultimately about him. And so this guy wants to overcorrect that. And I think he's wrong to overcorrect that. Because I think we do need to keep preaching like that. Mm. But then he's right in the sense of if you just do original context and the cross and stop there, what's the problem with that?
1: There are there are imperatives, right? There are imperatives and there are things in the Bible, there are commands that God calls us to live out in our lives. You know, the second half of many of the New Testament letters tell the Christian. Here's what your life needs to look like now, but it's in light of grace. So, if you look at the early chapters of those letters, they're hammering in the gospel of salvation, the free gift of righteousness that comes not by works, not by what you do, but a comfort and a rest and a perfect nature or a perfect um, kind of righteousness that's provided to you by faith. And when you receive that, when you receive that good news, then they turn after you're resting, while you're resting, and say, Okay, now live this way right you don't want to lose sight of that because what does what, what does ephesians say he chose us we created for good works this is yeah. the kind of conclusion this is the ultimate end That uh, it's not just that we're saved to be saved and comforted that's part of it but yeah it leads to hey he wants a
0: people in the world reflecting himself so we, we don't want an allergic reaction to good works do we an application yeah it's so important mm. and you, yeah you really do Butcher the text and don't love God if you don't go there. Because God, as, as 1 John says, God's God's law isn't supposed to be a burden for the Christian. I can rejoice in the law now, Romans 7, because it's no longer my executioner. Mm. Um, <laughs> outside of Christ, I can't rejoice in the law because it condemns me. But in Christ, it has no condemnation, that there's no swords hovering over my head. Christ has taken that sword. yeah, And so I can now get excited about the law because it's written on my heart and it doesn't condemn me. And uh, I, I want to please and, and obey God now. And and it's seeing that the law comes from, as Sinclair Ferguson says, in The Whole Christ, it comes from a good father. It's in the hands of a loving father because he wants the best for us. Hmm. And so if you don't give any kind of application or use from a passage, you're, you're sort of hampering the development of God's people and also their joy in that development.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I agree completely.
0: So on to the kinds of people that Jesus has come to save. Yeah, and, and so all that to say is, uh, as we do this series on the kinds of people that Jesus has come for, uh, we're doing it with that, that threefold aspect of original context, Jesus Christ, and then, of course, application as well. And so, so we're trying not to skip any of those. But, but what we're going to do today is we're going to begin by looking at Moses. Because he, he's the kind of guy that, he, he's with Abraham, isn't he? He's so important for, for Judaism. Mm. and for the Old Testament in general. Uh, and you might be thinking, well, he's just a really, really, really good guy. That's that's why God chose him. We know that's the case because he's the meekest man on earth, the Bible tells us. Straight from the mouth of Moses. Yep, <laughs> Straight from the mouth of Moses, maybe, yeah. Maybe. Well, it could have been uh, edited in later. <laughs> and he's the liberator of God's people. And so in a sense, he is a savior. He's a mediator. He's a prophet. He acts as a king. He's from the, the tribe of Levi, too. He, he's priestly. And so he's a pretty important and good figure until you actually read the details of the text (laughs) and you realize, oh, wait a minute. I don't think God has chosen Moses because he's a good guy. Again, this is why context is everything. We
1: we can't just rip out one chapter of the book and say, look how great this man is while isolating it from the rest of scripture.
0: Yeah, that's right. so, so, So the first place we see this is actually right at the beginning of the story in Exodus. So in chapter two, well, chapter 1, uh, Pharaoh is oppressing God's people, and it is pretty hard for them. And then chapter 2, Moses is born, and he's a baby, and then he, he grows up, and you know we, we miss the details in between. So the first place where we see Moses, the not-so-good guy, is in chapter 2, and it's in verse 11. So we're told this, one day when Moses had grown up, He went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian. He killed him, murdered him in cold blood, and hid him in the sands. And so this is Moses. This is the the person that God chooses to to be part of his great salvation plan. The guy that just in an act of cold murder, cold-blooded murder, just beat someone over the head
1: and in saying that we're not justifying the egyptian beating the hebrew right so so oftentimes sin comes out of sometimes a a heart that rightly sees wrong in the world but we can see the wrong but then we can respond sinfully and go beyond what is called for and so here that's what moses does he he goes beyond the call the called for action and, and murders this person
0: yeah so he doesn't wait on god he doesn't pray he, he tries to take salvation into his own hands. He's, he's trying to liberate the people without God's, God telling him to do that. So you're like, oh, well, this isn't good. And, and he gets in a bit of trouble and he has to run away because of it. And so you see, well, this clearly wasn't a good idea because now he's, he's escaped Egypt and he's away from the people of God. And there God appears to him in a burning bush. And it's one of the most important accounts in the whole Bible where God reveals his name. I am that I am Yahweh, the covenant keeping God. And here Moses gets into a a bit of a conversation with the Lord. And Brian, do you want to talk about that? So you have God
1: calling Moses into this place of ministry because he's hearing the cries of his people, Israel in Egypt, and he wants to respond, right? Now God is on the move. He's going to respond to their cries and he's going to use Moses. And so he calls Moses to himself and says, okay, you need to go to my people. And here's the message you need to tell them. And what does Moses respond with? Really? Me? I'm the one, I don't think I, how are they going to believe me? I don't think they're going to trust what I have to say. What am I supposed to tell them? Who am I supposed to say sent me? And he starts to question God's will. And this is the God of the universe. You know, the one who created all things, declares the end from the beginning. And he tells this man, I need you to do this. Or I want, not need, I don't need you, but I want you to do this. And Moses goes, I'm not sure about that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. How, you know, the first verse. They won't believe me or listen to my voice. They'll say, the Lord didn't appear to you. God's like, mate, like, leave this with me. It's okay. <laughs> I've, I've got this under control. You don't need to worry about all of that. And God, I love how, how God works with sinners. He condescends in mercy and then gives Moses, again, wobbly worshiper like Abraham. He's, he's pretty unbelieving, but God gives him a sign, and, and that sign brings a bit of courage to to Moses. And then you got verse 10.
1: But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. So this is quite interesting. It's almost like, who are you to talk back to this God, right? Mm-hmm. This, is, this is your creator. And he's now telling you, you need to do this. And he says, well, let me let me throw out some more excuses. You know, I didn't feel like the people would listen to me. But now, listen, I'm, I I just can't talk. You want me to be your mouthpiece? <laughs> I've got speech issues. And so God says to him, well, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. And so we think at this point, Moses is convinced. Well, right? He's got it now, doesn't he? But he's got, to, yeah, right? He's got it, right? God has obvious, responded to yeah. his concerns and he says, look, okay, you, you're, you're telling me these excuses. I'm saying I made the mouth make people mute. I make them speak. And so Moses
0: says, thank you so much, Lord. That that makes so much sense. How did I'm I on my way. I'm going to go speak thank to you. him now. Yes, I, I've got this. Verse 13. But he said, oh, my God, please send someone else. <laughs> and I love this. And the anger of the Lord is kindled against him. God's like, ah, <laughs> this isn't cool. And so God gets angry, rightly so, with Moses. Again, even tenderly gives Moses another option in Aaron, or Aaron, as is, as as we sometimes say, so you're like, oh, this, is, this is Moses, his very first encounter with God at the burning bush, and he's making all kinds of excuses. He doesn't believe that the people will believe it. So he's unbelieving. Uh, he's then lying, or possibly lying that he, he doesn't speak very well, because he probably can speak well. If he's not lying and telling the truth, then again, he's still unbelieving because yeah. God has made his mouth. God can use his speech yeah. in any way he pleases. Even it's not if about it's, you, even, Moses.
1: Even if it's not a great, you know, what did, what did Paul say? He didn't come with eloquent words, right? Yeah. He came in the power of the Spirit of God.
0: Yeah, Moses, if, if this was all about you, then yeah, that stuff really matters. But it's not about you. And then thirdly, send someone else. He's abdicating his responsibility. And so the Lord is rightly angry. And so you're but like, he- well...
1: He graciously responds, right? So, so, you know, you see in scripture over and over again, at the site of human failure, God provides another gracious element. Mm-hmm. Either in the garden at the, after the failure of Adam and Eve, you know, he tells them they're going to die. There's curses now because of the fall. And what does he do? He clothes them, mm-hmm. right? in In animal skins and a sacrifice of shed blood to cover the shame of their nakedness. And so here you, you have a man in his failure and his unbelief rejects the things that God's saying, tries to get out of him, gives every excuse under the sun. And yet God says, okay, well, don't you have a brother, Aaron, a Levite? He can speak well. And then he says, behold, he is coming to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to say what to do again, Moses fails right at the beginning of his, of his story, two times in a row, at the beginning of his story, he murders someone and he refuses to believe God at his word and wants to give an excuse to, against obeying God. And then he says to him, okay, look, I'll let you use your brother.
0: Yeah. And we're thinking, well, that's chapter four. At least we can move on from that now. Well, no, you can't hold on, hold your horses because still in chapter four, you've got verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and sought to put him to death. <laughs> then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin really, really quickly. That's why I'm reading it really, really quickly. Touched Moses' feet with it, which is really weird and, and, and it's hard to understand. <laughs> and said, surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. And um, the Lord had mercy on Moses. What's going on there? Well, Moses didn't circumcise his son. That's absolute madness. That's, that's not just a rejection, but despising of God's covenant. It's me verbally saying, do
1: not count me or my children in the covenant community. Count me apart
0: from God. Yeah. So in just a couple of chapters, you've got three massive failures. These aren't small failures. Yeah. These are that, and that last one, one that's really easy to gloss over as you're doing your you know, yearly Bible reading plan or something, is actually quite, quite serious and quite important.
1: Do you right? have, well, Moses is constantly being bailed out by someone else, right? <laughs> He's being bailed out by Aaron. Now he's being bailed out by his wife. And it it's constantly his failure and somebody fixing it for him. Mm. And it really shows us that we don't fix our own mess.
0: Yeah, so good. So so good. So true. And and then Moses goes on from there. And like with Abraham, if you remember, if you listen back to episode three, he, he was he also had great moments. And Moses does have great moments. And he is the oh you've got to have some kind of metal and steel to be able to stand before Pharaoh and and say what he said and, and do what he did and and he has great boldness and he does all of that and so you, you go through the rest of Exodus and and you know, Numbers and Leviticus and and Deuteronomy and he, he's he's pretty good for for most of that but there there are still hints along the way that you're like well this this guy is still actually just like the rest of us
1: but well, I think it's quite amazing about his story right so after the beginning failures, you start to see kind of an upward trend in Moses' life. And you think, okay, you know, this is great. He's now God's mouthpiece. God speaks to him like a friend. He gets to see the backside of God in, in a cleft in the rock and and is and able to live that way and seeing somewhat of, of God's glory, but veiled. And, and you're thinking, oh, this man, this man's got it going on. And he he's, it he's, he's pretty good here. But then you get to the end of Exodus, right? And the tabernacles erected the tent of God. This is the meeting place. God's going to fill this tent and live in the midst of his people as they surround this tent as a tribe. Now, we're not saying that all of God fits into this little tent. We're saying that it's the place of his presence in the world, even though his presence can't be confined. He is infinite. But what do we see at the end of Exodus? Well, it says that the glory of God fills this tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is the, the, like the holiest man in Israel at the time. Yeah, sure, he ha- has his failures, but if there's anybody who can represent us before the Lord in that day and age, it's Moses. And he cannot enter in to see the Lord. And so, what's the problem here? Why, why can't this? This is like the climactic moment. We're, we're looking at the entire trend of the Bible. There's so much written about the tabernacle. All the furniture, all the different things that are going to go into it. And so you're it's building and building the 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 kind of suspense. Oh, this is great. God's gonna come here and all of a sudden he comes and God can't meet man. Man can't go into the tent. And so we get to Leviticus that follows immediately after that, and we see why. Sin. Sin. Moses had it. It's why he couldn't enter in. It's why none of us could enter in. Sin has plagued all of Israel and it plagues Moses. And so the rest of Leviticus shows how they're to be kept clean and how they're to be ceremonially and and ritually clean and how they're supposed to make atonement for sins throughout the year this way that they could meet with God and at least the high priest could enter once a year. So all of this points back to Moses being a man like us. He's not perfect. He isn't going on. He has failures and he has stains of sin that bar him from entrance into the tent of meeting.
0: Mm, That's really good, man. That's really good. So that then, then we get to not the end of Moses' life, but the most tragic part of Moses' life where he rebels and sins in such a way where he is cut off from entering the promised land, which I can't help but feeling a little bit bad for the guy. Mm, yeah. uh, and maybe that's because I have a, a, small view, a smaller view of God than, than, than I should have. That's probably true. <laughs> but, Same here. But, but also he, he just reminds me of me you know, I think I think I would have done the same thing. Uh, to, to be honest, I would, have, I would have been fed up and smacked that rock years ago. I'm sick to death of these people by this time. But you
1: know what? It's interesting that after the Lord responds to him, he, he's learned his lesson. He doesn't really talk back and give excuses. I probably still would. Yeah, like, yeah. God. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. So so this is what we read. Numbers 20, verse 10. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Here now, you, re- you rebels. He's fed up now, isn't he? See how we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me. Here's the the problem. Because you did not believe in me. Mm. It's a lack of faith. To uphold me is holy. That's the second thing. In the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Moses, by this stage, he is fed up with this stupid, stiff-necked people. And um, as I said, he, he murdered a guy way back in Exodus. I, I don't know how he didn't murder all of these people, to be honest with you. Yeah. He's so fed up with them. He, he is unbelieving in his heart. He, he does what God did not tell him to do. So he doesn't honor God as holy. And he, we get a little bit of a window and an insight into the man. He, he is just a man like us. If you're yeah. reading that and you're like, you know what, I get that. I'd be fed up. I'd be frustrated. I would smack that rock too. And you're like, well, there there we see it. Moses isn't some kind of hero of the faith that is unattainable. He's just a bloke.
1: A part of the the problem here is Moses' own pride comes into play. And he sees the crimes of these people, Israel, as crimes against himself rather than than against God. And so he says, well, look, I'm offended. It's against me. Then we're, should we bring out water from this rock? And he just strikes the rock. And I think here it could have been tempered by an understanding that these sins are against the Lord and the Lord will have his way and he will bring about his, his plan despite the obstinance and stiff neckness of his people.
0: Yeah. And so, and so the sad thing is now Moses can't enter the promised land, but here is where God's grace shines in stunning beauty. Who is it that appears on the mountain with Jesus in the very promised land? Moses himself. Moses. And so even though here God is saying, Moses, you are not going to step foot in this place. Yeah, the Lord in his amazing, like mind-bending and mind-blowing love allows Moses to be one of the men that stands in the promised land with the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord Jesus. And here again, you're like, wow. Again, Moses is a great sinner, but he has a great savior in God. And he, he will stand in the antitype of the land of
1: Canaan, in the place that the promised land of Canaan points it forward to. In the new heavens and new earth, Moses will be there rejoicing in his savior alongside of us. And so he is a man that will recount to you when you see him face to face, not me, man. Did you read the book? I was a mess. But Christ, my savior, was perfect. Mm. And he stood in my place and took the curse for me. And because of him, I'm washed and I am going to enter into this land with you and we will rejoice forever in our perfect Lord.
0: Mm, so good. So good. And yeah, and so, so Hebrews 11 lists Moses and these people of faith. And, and what's the key word? What's the chorus that resounds like a football stadium? What's the song being sung? By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Moses isn't righteous because he's done anything good. He is righteous by faith. That is the point that Hebrews 11 is making. And it's not the bigness of his faith. Because here, God says, you didn't believe in, you didn't believe me. You're unbelieving. Your faith is not just small, it's non-existent at this point. But you know what? You're mine. So how about we get into Israel now? So this isn't a person, obviously, it's a nation. And again, like with all of these others, you may be thinking, well, you know, I, I know why God chose Israel, because they're his people. They believe in him. They're worshippers of one true God. They're they're really good people. And don't and we see that in Exodus 2 at the very beginning, where they're in, in slavery in, in Egypt, and they cry out to God, and God hears their groaning and remembers his covenant. Well, I want to start here, because I, I think this is very interesting. And I think this is something that a lot of people often overlook. And that is, just notice the details Exodus 2 verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. It doesn't say that they cried out for Yahweh. It doesn't say they were desperately crying out to to their God because of what they were going through. They They just cried out. It's like if you're being attacked by someone, you just cry out for someone to help you. That's what they're doing. It's not even like they're directing their prayers to to Yahweh. I don't think it would be a stretch to suggest that at this point they might even be worshipping some of the other gods too.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, we get hints that that's probably true, especially with what we see in in Exodus 32. They they just cry out because they're, they're having a rough time. And this is what I love about God. We're, t- we're, we're told God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant. God saw his people. And God knew. And so the reason he responds
1: in grace is not because of anything in Israel, not because of their goodness and righteousness or anything amazing within them, but he responds and hears their cries because of the promise, because he is a gracious God yeah, that's and he's it. kind and loving. And so he hears his people for the sake of his promises and his goodness.
0: Yeah, he's a covenant-keeping God and he's going to be faithful to his word and that's why he rescues them and so what happens well god god takes them out of of egypt in great signs and wonders and then the the nation of israel go from just godliness to greater godliness don't they no <laughs> it's a train wreck. The very first, it is a train wreck man the, the very first thing they do is complain they complain about the water they complain about the matter they then complain about the bread they complain about the 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 meat, they then complain and say, "Look, they got garlics and cucumbers back back there. in Egypt. Let's go back to slavery. That was way better than this." Man, I'm missing the garlics and the cucumbers. Like what? It's just madness. And over and over again, they grumble against Moses and they complain about the rock and they compl- It's just constant complaining and grumbling and whinging and whining. And then and then you get to Exodus 32. Uh, and this is a real low point in the story of Israel. They set up a golden calf. And, oh, well, it's okay, though, because they still think that it's Yahweh. Yeah, and they tribute it to it.
1: Hey, this is what set us free and brought yeah, us out of Egypt. That's
0: fine. We can worship Yahweh in any way we want as long as it's Yahweh. No, you cannot. <laughs> that is the, the breaking of, of, of God's moral law. And they break God's commands. And, and we see that because Moses smashes those things up. And and again and again, like just keep reading through Exodus, keep reading through Numbers in particular. Oh man, it's awful in in Numbers. It gets even worse. And, and even when they spy out the lands, they come back, and other than Joshua and Caleb, they say, "God can't do this. Let's that, let's just go back because we this isn't this isn't a good land. We don't want to go there." And then it strikes the the, the fear into the heart of all the people, and then they turn against God, and they're unbelieving in their hearts, and. And then you've got the stuff with the snakes and, and, and more judgment and judgment. And, oh, man, you're, you're like, it, it, the whole thing is a mess. It's
1: very interesting when you get to Deuteronomy 33 and you, you have God kind of through Moses predicting the fall or the, the breaking of his covenant. That these people, the Lord said to Moses, behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers and this people will arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land into the midst of which you are going and will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in, the, in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them. But, but then you have like right after that a few verses down. Now, therefore, write this song for yourselves and teach it to the sons of Israel. Put it on their lips so that this song may be a witness for me against the sons of Israel. For when I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and are satisfied and become prosperous. Then they will turn to other gods and serve them and spurn me and break my covenant. And it shall come upon them when many evils and troubles have come upon them, that this song will testify before them as a witness. It shall not be forgotten from the lips of their descendants. For I know their intent, which they are developing today, before I've brought them into the land which I swore. So it's quite interesting. Like You have this, this aspect of God where he predicts their fall or breaking of the covenant. And he says, well, we'll write this song so that it'll testify to what they've done and continue to teach them and le- and and show them the truth of this. But then you don't see him kind of give up on the plan. Because he, he could at this point say, well, they're going to fail, so I might as well just end it here.
0: How's that for a national anthem, by the way? I'm a loser.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like,
0: well. it's a national anthem. Here we
1: go. Like, we are going to fail. There's no hope. We should just stop now. That's not what happens, right? You, you have him, okay, this is going to happen. Here's a song that's going to testify against them when they do do this. But then you have them continuing to build the nation of Israel, to expand them into the Promised Land, to conquer in the conquest more of the land of Canaan, and to establish kings and continue down mm-hmm. in the priestly and, and prophetic order. And you think, why? The the failure was predicted all the way back before Joshua took over.
0: And before you get to why, just to agree with you, I always find this really hilarious. If if you're if you're sitting there and you've got a Bible. Please just open to Deuteronomy 28. Because in that chapter you've got the blessings for obedience and then the bless and the curses for disobedience. And I just love how you've got like you've know, like got three lines. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you've got kind of like three lines for look, this is how you'll be blessed if you obey. And then you've got like 10,999 lines of the curses for disobedience. Why would Moses tee it up that way? Well, because he knows that they're going to disobey. So there's there's no point in saying too much about the blessings for obedience because you guys are going to be the disobedient ones and you're going to be mm. cursed for it so so why go yeah why go on
1: yeah and and
0: do you, do you know what
1: though when the times when Moses is appealing on behalf of God's people the israel the chosen people of god when he's appealing to god don't destroy them all don't just wipe them from the face of earth what who does he appeal to does he appeal oh they're good you know really they've they've got some good works You know, they're rough around the edges, but there's some good tendencies that they have. Or, you know, there are people that you've chosen. What does he appeal to? The covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He appeals to the promise. He appeals to the gracious elements of God. He says, oh, don't look to their sin. Don't look to the problems that they have in themselves. If that were the case, you should just, yeah, you're right. Destroy them right now. But you are a gracious God and you have given promises. Uphold your gracious promises in keeping these people alive. Do not wipe them from the face of the earth, Lord, for I know who you are.
0: Yeah, so good. One, one of my favorite psalms to read, um, I, I read it quite often, Psalm 25, where where the psalmist says, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. Mm. I often pray that. I often open up Psalm 25 and pray that. Or please don't rem- don't think of me in terms of my sin. Remember me in terms of your covenant faithfulness because that's what I need Amen. that's what Israel needs and as the story goes on they're a complete and utter diabolical mess they are they are they seemingly look like they're they're the seed of the serpent they don't look like they're the seed of the woman they don't look like they're on God's side and you know as the story unfolds they they take the land year but they, they immediately apostatize and and then you've got all of the kings and They go off and worship other idols and you've got all of the judgments from the prophets and pretty much the whole rest of the Old Testament is looking back at Deuteronomy 28. If you'll obey, you'll be blessed and if you don't, you'll be cursed. And it's kind of like, how do we get in this predicament? And and, and that is the thing. And then then you turn the page to Matthew chapter one.
1: Mm.
0: And here is Jesus. Here's the one that's going to do what you could never do. And uh, he's the one to obey the terms of the covenant. When you look at almost
1: kind of the unpacking of Israel's history. And you get through all the different, I'd say the book of Judges, like all the different Judges, and you get these ones that are good and some are a little bit iffy, yeah, we're not really yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and you think, well, man, we're, you know, all the way back from the promise to Adam and Eve of you know what we call the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, that there will be a seed that will crush the serpent's head, but the serpent will strike his heel. This is pointing forward to Christ's you know, victory on the cross, And Satan temporarily putting him to death and striking his heel in that way. Well, we're then looking throughout the entire Bible to see where this man will show up. Is it this one? Is it that one? Is it this one? You get to the book of Judges and you're thinking, okay, now things are a total mess, but maybe this one's it, but it never is. Mm. So every judge comes and goes, even the great ones, they disappear. And then the people descend back into evil. But what what you see throughout that book is a lifting up of one tribe and a tearing down of another. So, so one tribe that kind of is seen in that book as, as sort of a leader and, and almost kind of a call to some good qualities is Judah. And, and the tribe that's kind of torn down is Benjamin, right? And so we're not, and, and, and what's the refrain over and over in the book of Judges? There were no kings in that day and people did whatever was right. There was no king in that day and people did whatever was right in their own eyes. So, so two things are at play here. One, you're being told over and over again, this is chaos. This is a nightmare. There's no king. We need a king. You're also being told what kind of king you need. Mm. Not a king from the tribe of Benjamin, but a king from the tribe of Judah. Oh, who's the first king? Saul. What tribe? Benjamin. Who's the second king? David. What tribe? Judah. Mm. So we're being told not just that we need a king, but what kind of king? The Lion of Judah. Yeah, that's really the ultimate good. king.
0: Yeah, that's so good. And and we'll 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 jump to David now. But just quickly before that, um, because Dave, David will be a fun one to do as well. But just Deuteronomy seven, really, th- this is the answer if you're wondering. So so why on earth did God choose this people then? It, what why would He put up with Israel? Because they're they're a, a train wreck of a people. Well, Deuteronomy seven verse six, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. This is the theme of this series: who, who Jesus, who God chooses. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all the peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath, being faithful to his covenant. There's the answer, friends. It's got nothing to do with the impressiveness of Israel as Christians, it's got nothing to do with our impressiveness. It's not because we're brilliant. It's not because we're clever. It's not because we're so moral that our eyes are opened and you know we, we, we get it all. It's not because now that we're Christians, we never sin. No, God chooses us because he loves us. And you might say, that's circular. And I would say, yes, yes. God doesn't choose me because there's anything in me. He chooses me because he chooses me, because it's his love. And that is so, so comforting.
1: So you don't have to look to yourself to find the reason for God's love. I think if you sent me digging into my own life, I can find you many reasons that he shouldn't love me. And so what we're saying is, he loves you in spite of those reasons. There are many. There are many things within your life, many failures and sins, that should discount the affections of a holy God. But That holy and just God is gracious and merciful and he has provided a way through Christ to love you to take you for himself to receive you forever and it's not by anything in you because there's nothing in you worth loving in in sense in the sense of like loving from a holy God's perspective but he loves you specifically because you were hidden Christ and he has chosen you before the world ever Mm -hmm. was created
0: So let's, let's, let's move on to David. And, and we'll, we'll be brief with this one. So, so King David is the man that, that God chooses to be king. And we see this with the constant contrast, compare and contrast with Saul and with David. So all, all the way through the account in, in 1 Samuel, you'll see the Lord say, you lot have chosen a king for yourself. So it was the people of Israel that wanted it. And it's so funny, <laughs> Who is the guy that they choose to be king? It's the really tall, massive sort of warrior guy. And you're like, well, of course, that's the kind of guy that you'd pick. And where is he when his name's being called out? He's sort of sitting in a garbage bin, <laughs> hiding among all the rubble. He's carrying away, and he ends up being an awful, awful king. And so that's the, the kind of king that we would choose, mm-hmm. one that looks brilliant outwardly. But the kind of king that God chooses is is a little shepherd boy that no one really would bother with. And, and now I, I, know, I know there's that, that passage, isn't there, all the way through 1 Samuel, where it says that David was a man after God's own heart. Now, the Hebrew is, is, is slightly different. It is God chose a man after his own heart. It's not that David was a, a little shepherd boy and he had a really lovely heart, and so he just loved the Lord. No, it's God chose someone after his own heart. In other words, God's hand-picked, hand-selected David to be king, mm. which already sets us up with the, the foundation that, that David's not going to be chosen because there's anything good in him. The passage is already established. It's not because of anything in him. It's not because he looks brilliant. It's not because he's the pick of the litter. He, he's actually the least likely candidate to be selected. But God chooses someone after his own heart for his own glorious purposes. And as David grows up, he fights Goliath, which is quite amazing. Takes great faith. David shows amazing faith and faithfulness in that moment. He's a picture of the Messiah, absolutely. Uh, but there, there were occasions in David's life where he, he fails abysmally. And two of those key moments, one is with Bathsheba, which is the famous incident, and the other one is with numbering the nation of Israel. Brian, do you, you want to just talk about what happened with Bathsheba and why it was so abominable?
1: Yeah, so you have David's account where he is kind of hanging out at home right where the, where the nation of Israel and all its men were off at war carrying out the conquests that the Lord has advocated for or commanded that the, that Israel ought to do and he decides that I'm not going to go to war with my people I'm just going to stay at home and relax on the rooftops of my kingdom and he sees a woman that looks desirable and she's beautiful and so he says to his men get that woman for me I want her and so she has a husband but David doesn't seem to care and he lies with her and this kind of begins really a, a sinful spiral where he gets her pregnant, and he panics. he's trying to figure out how do I get out of this? How do I cover this up and And he asks to get her husband back from war so that he could try to manipulate him into lying with. Hurt his wife again, and he tries he drunk? Doesn't he? Yeah, he tries to get him drunk. This oh. man is more righteous than David. Not only you know david's staying home from war when his responsibilities would have been at the, the the battlefield. This man says, "Look, my men are out there fighting. I'm not gonna go in there in the comforts of life and sleep with my wife when I've men at my brothers out there." And so he almost shows himself as being more righteous than David. And and so this plan didn't work to cover up his sin. So what does David do? He writes a letter to his commanders and says, "Put this man on the front lines and then withdraw from him so that he gets killed by the enemy." And that's what they do, and 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 he gets killed. And so he mur- essentially has this man murdered to cover up his sin of sleeping with this man's
0: wife. This is God's king. Mm. It's hard to know what to say, isn't it? In, in response to that, I mean, this this is the man that God has chosen, and and this is what he does, and and. And and then you've got the second moment where he, he numbers the people and that's in, I, I would, I'd prefer to, if you were to turn to 1 Chronicles 21, as opposed to Samuel, because what's interesting about Chronicles is it whitewashes all of David's life. It even whitewashes the the David and Bathsheba moment. It doesn't mention it, but it mentions. And the reason for that is because it's, Chronicles is doing something different than Samuel and Kings. It's trying to portray the messianic king, the perfect kind of a king. And yet it does talk about David's sin when he brings the census and numbers his people. What's David doing, though? It's in chapter 21. He numbers his people, and then a whole load of his own men die. So God sends a pestilence and a plague. David is acting in pride. So you would, you would number your people by because you, you trust in the numbers. You're thinking, well, I, I'm not trusting in the Lord here. Let me count how many heads I've got. Okay, I think I think I can win this battle. So that's what David's doing. The reason Chronicles mentions it is because of David's response. He immediately repents. So he is the penitent king. That was the expectation of the Messiah. He'll be the perfect penitent king. And we see that on the cross. Hmm. Jesus repents on behalf of his people. He is not a sinner. He's never sinned in his life. And yet he bears all of our sins. In one sense, he is that perfect penitent king on the cross. The the other thing to, to mention with David is he's often called blameless in the Psalms. Or he talks about his own blamelessness, which is really interesting, isn't it, given what we've just discussed about David. When we hear blamelessness, we've got a Christological category in our heads. When we hear the word blameless, we think sinless. That is not how the Jew would have heard that word when they read any of the Psalms. Blameless for David meant that he was a man who didn't commit idolatry, and that was true. That's what it means to be blameless in the Psalms. The one who does not give his heart to an idol. Mm. Yeah, David was blameless. He never did that, and 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 he needs to be commended for that. So the expectation of the Messiah was that he would be someone like that. Now Jesus hyper fulfills the Old Testament, and I love that about the New Testament. So the, the the Jew was expecting a blameless, though not sinless Messiah, and what they end up getting is a blameless, perfect, sinless Messiah. So Jesus completely just blows up all of their expectations. Mm. But what we're trying to say about David here is that. He, he was not chosen because he's a good guy. Again, he's just like the rest of us. How many of us men that are listening to this right now, if you were in that position, would not have done the same? If you were lazing around, not in battle, all the men are out, you look out your window and you see the stunningly gorgeous naked woman in the bath in your view. So probably hints that, well, she was, she was probably doing that for a reason. Who, who among you with the power that you have to then be able to take whatever woman you want, wouldn't have gone and done that. I think Most of us, it's hard to admit, but most of us probably would be tempted to go and do that. Mm. Friends, that is what we're like. We are, we are those who are totally depraved. But what I love, again, is that God doesn't discard of David. He offers him a chance to repent, to turn, to come, to receive forgiveness, and he does it through the prophet Nathan. In a really funny moment, isn't it, when, when he tells a story and David gets all sort of pious and really angry about this man that's, that's done this and taken the sheep. And then Nathan's like, you're the man.
1: You're, you're the, the guy man. that's done
0: this. And all of a sudden, David's cut to the heart and, and he realizes what he's done. And, and, and what's mind-bending is that God doesn't shoo him away, brush, him under the, brush any, anything under the carpet, but receives him and welcomes him. And here, what is the punishment that David deserves according to the Mosaic law? He deserves to be yeah. stoned to death. Yeah. But what God does is He keeps those stones back and then hurls them at His Son on that cross. That is the only way that anyone like David or like you and like me can be saved, because God takes those stones and throws them at Christ.
1: So, as we close off this episode, we want you to know whether it be Moses, the nation of Israel, or David, or any other Old Testament or New Testament figure. They are not the individuals that we can find our hope in. They are not the perfect examples for us to emulate so that we can gain acceptance before God. They are people with messy track records who fall apart in their own sin and failures, and we see in them the only example that most deeply matters, their faith. In the mess of their sins, in the midst of their lives, they turned to look outside of themselves to a God who is merciful, gracious, and kind, the one who sent a Son of His into this world to live the life we could not live, to bear our sins upon Himself on the cross, and to be raised for our justification. In Him we have perfection, salvation, hope, rest, and assurance. In Him we are kept for all eternity. In him, we can know a righteousness that is not earned, but received. And we can find a hope to face the world in his perfection and strive to obey him, not out of guilt, not out of a pressure to become something that he can approve of, because he has approved of us in Christ. He has made us perfect. We obey him because he first loved us. And so we love him. And so Christian, rest in the righteousness that he provides, it is not found in your works or obedience because it's not been found in anyone else's before. Turn to a gracious God and find comfort there.